where they are. But if there's a seat between you and the person here, move over here because more folks will come in and I need to leave the aisle seats on the outside available. Okay, We're going to do that every Wednesday night to get ready for March 26th and Sundays up through April 23rd. So uh, let's leave the outside seats. we got a seat open there. Got to move over. Oh, someone's coming? Okay, all right, good. So that's occupied. Great. Thank you so much. Um, what I'd like for you to do, what I'd um, like for you to do is um, come uh, uh, Sunday, this coming Sunday, I want you to get accustomed to moving towards the middle, uh, or at least towards the aisle, so the outside seats can be safe for guests. And if you get guests on the aisle, and I've told you this before, they're more likely to walk the aisle during the invitation. If they've got to climb over you, that'll be different. I'm actually contemplating now, and I guess I should talk to the Operations and Facilities Committee, but let me just do leadership by announcement. Uh, uh, I'd like to move the pews further apart. Frankly, I'd like chairs, but uh, because we've got pews, I'd like to move some of them apart, take some out, and uh, have about uh, six inches more between pews. Um, that will probably correspond to uh, the day when we go to uh, two services. So anyway, uh, pray for us for wisdom with that so that lost people can get out down the aisle. Um, Sunday, uh, during the, um, um, Sunday during the upward celebration, during the invitation, little kids had a hard time getting out uh, and coming forward during the invitation. So we've got that in mind. But if you will, uh, try to sit towards the middle, leave the aisle seats open, especially on the outside, and then... Um, we, we need to ask you to, if you're, if you're able-bodied, now if you're um, uh, parents with real small children or senior adults and, and you're, you're, you struggle some to walk a good distance, um, you, you can ignore this. But the rest of us, let's park out in this parking lot here and leave the back one open, as open as we can, all right? Especially for guests and others, there'll be a bunch that'll be coming between now and May, and we need your help with that, all right? We're not going to police that. Um, too badly. If we do, you know, maybe $100 per infraction would be great. I, you know, I'm, I'm all for that. Yeah. Um, no, I don't believe it would go to the music fund. I've got a few other ideas for it. <laughs> uh, those pews I was talking about. I know, you're always angling. Good. Well, Bob, how would you know? <laughs> Friends, yeah, yeah. Uh, probably said a lot of other things, too. Matthew 16. Don't forget, um, March 26, invite your one. Uh, your Sunday school class should be hosting a prayer meeting, a home prayer meeting between now and then. And if not, persecute them until they do. And, uh, but th this, uh, the effectiveness, we, we want to do more than just gather a crowd. We want to win people to Jesus. And we want them to follow the Lord. And so... Uh, please be in prayer about that. Uh, tonight's the last night to get your deposit in for the mission trip. And more than 100 of you signed up, but only 40 of you have got your deposit in. Uh, you got to get it in. And will we have someone collecting those deposits at the end of the service? Yes? Okay. Tommy will? Okay. All right. If you'll get it in before 7 o'clock, uh, your deposit will remain what it was. If not, it'll triple. So... Uh, Please, um, by all means. No, they're not going to be any extra. So if you'll do that, we would greatly appreciate that. All right? Matthew 16 and 17, 
uh, continue the theme of Matthew, and that happens to be uh, the Great Commission. And I want to begin first with the message of missions. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. They wanted more confirmation than what he had given. They wanted more assurance than what he had given. And on the, uh, prior to the crucifixion and resurrection, look what he says. When it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus insisted that there was enough evidence prior to the crucifixion and resurrection to persuade and convince them to repent and place faith in Him. So already there is, and Jesus calls this the signs of the time. Now, that's not prophecy. At that point, that happens to be the ministry of Christ. Everything Jesus had said and done up to that point was enough. It was enough for the disciples. It was enough for large throngs and large crowds. It was enough for the women that supported his ministry. Why wasn't it enough for the Bible scholars and the most religious, the most devout, the most active in the kingdom? So there was enough evidence in his day to convince them, at least the humble, of the message. So their demand for a sign represents several things. I, I think one, it's a stall tactic. Uh, it's a way to brush off a decision, and many people will come up with that. They're putting conditions on God. Okay, you've done all this. I'll believe you if. Uh, you don't come to God that way. You don't come to God that way. We don't. And then it, it is actually resistance. And we, we've got to understand that when we're speaking to a lost world, whether Athens or Indian town, um, when we're speaking to them, we have got to be very, very careful that we do not encourage delay, that we do not encourage a process. We've got to be very careful. I do not agree that salvation is a process. I believe the Bible, not Greek Orthodox theology. That's what they teach. Uh, some lovely people there, but uh, I, I don't, don't agree with that. Now, there may be some people that need a process, but that's not because of God and the gospel. That's because of their wickedness. The moment you hear the gospel, God expects you to get saved then and not delay. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Now is the acceptable time. Behold, what? Now is the acceptable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Good. Um, Y'all didn't know that as well as I thought you did. <laughs> All right, by next week, you'll have it memorized, okay? Class, that's, that's your assignment. Um, now, that is an Old Testament quotation from Isaiah 49, verse 8. And so, it's so urgent, it's repeated twice. When you find the apostles preaching, or Jesus preaching in the Gospels, and they say, repent and believe, it's in the present imperative. It is present tense, and tell that person that's ringing that phone to repent now, okay? I'm just joking. But what? <laughs> Repent and believe the God. Is it for me? <laughs> Boy, y'all are rowdy tonight, aren't you? We're going to eliminate that back row. Yeah. Are they Catholic? Is it Bob's friend? All right. What is going on? I don't know. Do what? 
<laughs> anyway, back to the point. In the Gospels and Acts, whenever the command is given to repent and believe, it's in the present imperative. A per, right then, it's a command. Do it now. Don't wait. And so we, we, we've got to be careful not to tell people, well, take some time and think about it. That may be the only choice we have. That may be, I understand that. They might need a process because they're, they're captured by false religion. It could be they're captured in the flesh. It could be that they're captured in doubt. None of that's good. None of it's reasonable. None of, it, none of it makes any sense to God. I mean, not that he doesn't understand it, but it insults God when people don't say yes now. Now's the acceptable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. And that's what Jesus expected of these folks here. In fact, those who need more confirmation are described in verse number four. Look, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, seeks additional assurance. There's already assurance. Now, folks, listen. If there was already enough assurance of the message of Jesus Christ prior to his crucifixion and resurrection, then pray tell what's happened the last two millenniums. The whole world ought to be rushing to him. And it's a wicked, evil, nasty thing that they haven't done so already. Now don't get angry at them. I don't want to encourage that. But, but I'm, I'm real honest and transparent with people about the whole counsel of God, the totality of the gospel message when communicating with them. When they say no, I, I said, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you want to delay? You were supposed to be ready before I showed up. And, and to delay means you, you escalate your responsibility and accountability before God. And, and so if, if Judgment Day rolls around before you repent, it's going to be worse because of this encounter here. So that's the message of missions. But then there are the agents of missions, verses 13 to 27. I preached back on this in November, and so I want to um, uh, just scan this real quickly. But beginning in verse... 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, another Gentile region, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So Jesus is claiming to be the Son of Man in Daniel 7, a clear claim to his deity, his lordship and rulership. And they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said, who do you say that I am? So Simon Peter, with the first and only thing he says correctly in the Gospels, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now the crowds had one view of Jesus. And it was religious. It was complimentary. It was substantiated with, not by, but with Scripture. Especially when they said he's Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the prophets. Those are biblical personalities. So it's religious, complimentary, substantiated with, not by, the Bible and wrong. They're wrong. They missed it. But they sure were religious about it. Never underestimate the ability of religious people to get it wrong. Now I'm not talking about the timing of the resurrection. I believe there'll be a resurrection or rapture before the tribulation, um, second coming, the millennium kingdom. I think that that's an inference of Scripture, but there's some sweet people who think the rapture and second coming are simultaneous, and, and they are very committed to that view, and uh, they've got my respect. Um, th there are um, a lot of uh, things uh, biblically that um, are maybe one thing not as clear as some of the other. We're not talking about that here. 
This is not apocalyptic literature. This is not like interpreting the book of Revelation. We're not talking about apocalyptic literature. We're not talking about the timing of the resurrection. We're talking about the identity of Jesus Christ, and they still got it wrong. Do not underestimate religious people's ability to get it wrong. That may be why Chuck Colson said one day, God's biggest headache in the world has been religion. You know, I don't find much difficulty with evangelism and proper biblical priorities with lost people. They're not complaining. Most of them just don't even know we exist. The, the biggest challenge, the biggest challenge that anyone has ever had has been religious people who invent their religion and shape it around their ideas or their favorite human book or their favorite publishing house or their emotional needs and do not realize that they have projected themselves onto God and without knowing it have become idolaters. And so the crowd, they had an opinion and Jesus comes through and Peter confesses the right insight and it was contrary to what other people believed and it's correct. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, what Peter confessed here was more right than the opinion of the masses. And so Jesus promised to build himself a building, a church, on the rock of the word, and to give the apostles the keys to it. And that became the New Testament. The New Testament message happens to be the key that unlocks the door to get people into the household of God, the ecclesia, the church of the living God. So the agents of missions can expect contrary insights, then they can expect costly insights. Now we're not in heaven yet. Don't know if you've noticed or not, but we're not there yet. And so we are still in a world that's polluted with evil and sin. And because our motives are not yet perfect, we can make things difficult. And because of that, we can expect mission work to cost us something. Maybe from God's view, it doesn't really cost a whole lot. In fact, Paul will reflect on that in Romans 8.18. But mission work always costs us something. It hurts. Paul knew that, and so he said he needed to die daily to his goals, aspirations, dreams, his earthly affections, all sorts of things. We'll need to die. We'll need to conduct a personal funeral every day. And this, this death, this funeral, includes the death of our opinions, the need for approval and applause and affirmation, our goals, dreams, aspirations, our own ways, our attachment to the world, our own ministry model our own priorities, God, in fact, will work to kill these things and hang us and hang these things on a cross He's personally constructed and customized for every child of God. And this oftentimes creates pain. So God often arranges mission work in a way that makes us feel like He has put us in an electric chair and pulled the switch. It hurts. It causes some suffering. If, however, we place ourselves, figuratively speaking, in our goals, dreams, aspirations, opinions, views, ministry models, all these, place them on a cross figuratively, we've got some benefits. One, if we die there, we have no feelings. Dead men feel nothing. They have no attachment to anything on the earth. We feel nothing. And then we cannot look back. And we're not coming down. And so Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And I, I will tell you, beloved, if you don't do that, you won't be ready for ministry. 
You simply won't. Now, look how Peter experienced that in verse 21. From that time, Jesus emphasized this. He began to show them, his disciples, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Oh, well, now Peter knows a whole lot more than this, about this messiahship thing than Jesus. So look what he does in verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Okay, okay. <laughs> look, notice this. He goes from verse number 16 to verse number 22. It didn't take long, did it? Far be it from you, Lord, this should not happen to you. Now, he's intense. The word rebuke here is intense. Well, Jesus stopped and considered that for a while, didn't he? Oh, no, verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. Now, he's called him a rock earlier. He's called him a rock and said, on this rock... You're Peter, and upon this rock of the word of revelation, I'm going to build my church on you. You're a rock here, but now you're a scandalon to me, another rock, a stumbling block. Translated offense in the New King James. You're an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Those who do not think about the things of God, but only the things of men, are less like Jesus and more like who in verse 23? Now, if his family was there and his brothers were there, they said, oh, golly, he's doing that Satan thing again. Oh, I can't quit talking about Satan. There's coming a sweet day when we don't suffer anymore, but this ain't it. We're working with a God that intentionally arranges circumstances in mission to put us into pain that we might further the mission of Jesus Christ. And there's no way around that. Then there's the source of missions. And uh, liberal critics have a lot of fun with this uh, verse in verse 28 of chapter 16. Uh, but they've never been known for thinking patiently or carefully about Jesus' words. But um, as we talk about the source of missions, I, I, I need to remind us that the biblical mission is not the church's plan for survival. And the biblical mission is not the church's plan to perpetuate itself. The biblical mission is God's invention. It's the mission of God. And the more godly we are, the more we adore the mission. And the more we participate in it. So it is the mission of God. He conceived it. He defines it. He acts in it, he resources it, and it involves the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in all of its significant uh, aspects. Now, the mission consists of God using his people, whether Israel or now the church, to reclaim the heavens and earth as Christ's kingdom and the nations as his subjects. And we find in this text several items related to the Trinity. There is the arrival of the Son, verse 28 of chapter 16. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until the second coming. That's essentially what most people understand this to say. And there's a lot of truth in that. But I read my skeptics' notes today. They've put out a King James Version Bible, and in the margins put their skeptic notes, and they mark this as an erroneous prophecy, and that Jesus was wrong. Because all these people died before the second coming. Well, let's look at it. Maybe they didn't. 
Now, you know, um, even if you don't believe in biblical inspiration, let's have a little respect for the human author. He knows that verse 28 is in there, and he's writing several decades after some apostles have already died this text. Is he really that dumb to put something like that in there? When it couldn't possibly be true? Let's have a little respect for the author. But there's more to it than just that. Let's read the text again. Assuredly, I say to you, in fact, Jesus is emphatic. Assuredly, amen, amen, emphatically, with divine emphasis, I say to you, that's the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord. So emphatically, I speak with the voice of God. Matthew recorded it, and here it is. There's some of you who shall not die till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Well, let's keep reading, because the context continues into the next chapter. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun in Revelation chapter 1 and in chapter 19 in his second coming. His clothes became as white as light as they will be in Revelation 19 in his second coming. This is a preview of Jesus coming in his kingdom. It happened just a few days later. None of them had died. Prophecy is true. It just took six days to fulfill. See? So we need to be careful of being too critical of what Jesus is saying here. But what we find here is that Jesus is arriving if I can put it that way, in his kingdom. When Christ returns, he's going to be brilliant and glorious, far beyond anything you've ever experienced and far beyond anything you could ever imagine. When Jesus Christ returns in his second coming, it's going to be like verse 2 all over again. It's a marvelous sight. And he is the source of this mission. And that's what we're working for. We're laboring all that we can to expand that kingdom in this day so it's as large as it can be when he returns. Well, that leads us to the applause of the Father. Chapter 17, verses 5 through 9, um, there is a cloud that overshadows them. And there's a voice that comes from the cloud. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And the disciples were greatly afraid. God the Father comes to that scene in a very rare visitation to the earth. And he speaks in Jesus' glory. Again, this is a preview of his coming, a preview of his full manifested kingdom. He comes and he does there what he will one day do later. And that is he shouts the praises of his own son. And how in the world the world can stay in bed on Sunday morning and fail to shout his praises is a mystery that no human, I think, could ever solve. I certainly don't understand it. But the Father says, this is my beloved Son. And so he says several things. This is my one, my Son. I identify with him. He is my beloved Son. Intense love. Um, he's my Son, and I'm well pleased with him. This is a preview of what will take place in the future kingdom when Christ does come. There, the Father will arrange all things to magnify Jesus Christ. And if He does it, don't you think churches should as well? And so our worship 
whether it's our daily worship or our corporate worship, should be something of a preview of that day when he is shouted and exalted and lifted on high. And so no worship service of any Christian church should ever be a thing where a conservative Jew or Muslim can, can, can agree with everything that's been said. Or a Jehovah's Witness or Mormon by that stretch of uh, measure, either. It should all magnify Jesus Christ intensely. And, and so this is what the Father does with him. Now, John Piper has overstated his case, but I think he's made a good point, if it's kept in biblical balance, that missions exist because worship does not. In other words, what God is attempting to do with missions are several things, one of which is that he's trying to gather a people to magnify the name of Christ for all eternity, and the larger the number, the better. Now, there are other reasons to do missions, and some have reduced this down just to the glory of God, the glory or the worship of Jesus Christ, when the Bible offers other motives like the love of God, the need of the world, the threat of hell, the promise of heaven, those kinds of things. But nevertheless, even though it's a little overstated, it is true, missions does exist for several biblical reasons, one of which is to magnify Christ. So listen, if you get fed up and tired of people, and you really don't care, what happens to them, at the very least, you can still care about what happens with Jesus. And, and you will get fed up with people. You will. They've got a good way of putting you in that position. They do. They find out what annoys you so they can do it over and over and over again, don't they? I don't mean to talk about your family, but that's what we're doing. That's what happens with people. Well, then there's the activity of the Spirit. In Luke 1.17, the angel would tell Zacharias about John the Baptist that he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And here John, uh, Jesus compares G, uh, John the Baptist to Elijah and says that from Micah 4.5 that uh, John fulfills that prophecy that Elijah would, uh, that he is Elijah to come. Not the actual Elijah, but the Elijah to come. And they completely missed that in John even though Jesus said he, he restored all things. He made Israel ready for him. I mean, John did his job, and they still missed it. If John needed the power of the Holy Spirit, we certainly do as well. And that's one of the things I've appreciated about our missionaries through the years, and our evangelists as well. They, more than anyone else I've ever known in Southern Baptist life, have appreciated and understood the work of the power of the Holy Spirit. He's not a stranger to them. And I don't know if it's because of training or necessity or um, personal crisis or what it would be, but for some reason they are more keen to the power of the Holy Spirit than just about anyone else I know in uh, ministry uh, life. Of course, it makes sense to me because when you encounter the world, you have to have the power of the Holy Spirit because if you don't, you're going home. You've got to have the power of the Holy Spirit. Then there's the extended missions, chapter 17, verse 14 to 21. Uh, here, Jesus comes off the mountain down to uh, a gathering of his disciples where a father has brought his son. And Mark tells us he was demon-possessed. Matthew says he's got, I think this is something of an anachronism, but says he's got something, of, uh, something similar to epilepsy. And the demon ends up throwing him into the water and the fire. He burns himself, nearly drowns himself, and it's a torture to this boy. And Jesus comes in the midst and he takes care of it. Now the father, had brought, the father had brought his son to the disciples and asked them to heal him. And some of the saddest words in the Bible is, comes from this father's lips. And they could not. They could not. And Jesus almost wails 
Oh, perverse, unbelieving generation, how much longer shall I be with you? But then he says some of the most hopeful words I've ever heard in my life. Addressed to any parent that's ever suffered because of their children. He says, bring him here to me. That's what he said. He still says that too. Bring him here to me. Well, this is the extent of missions. Missions extends as far as the Christian presence. Jesus and three of his disciples were on the Mount of Glory and they came into the Valley of Suffering and Lostness. And that's the movement of the Christian faith. Back and forth between those two places. Back and forth between those two poles. From a walk with God that's full of glory on the Mount down into the Valley of Suffering and Difficulty. Jesus didn't merely send a representative. Jesus didn't send literature. Jesus didn't do a radio or TV broadcast. And all of those things can be helpful. What Jesus did instead is that he came himself. He came in human form. Uh, In missions, we call this an incarnational model of uh, missions. We go in the flesh. We get there. And so as a result, through the years, we've prioritized the career missionary. I think that's important because they go into a place And they learn the people, learn the language, learn the culture. Now, the reason that is so urgent in this day is that we're on the verge in some places of substituting short-term missionaries and short-term mission trips for the career missionary. And I don't think that's a healthy development. What happens is that some have dropped their giving to career missionaries in Southern Baptist Life, the cooperative program, Lottie uh, Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong, in order to fund their own short-term mission trips. And so, instead of funding a missionary who will be on the field 30 and 40 years, they end up funding a two-week mission trip on the part of people who never learn the language and who never learn the culture. They pop in, pop off, pop out, and don't have a long-term mission strategy. Um, Truth is, is that both can work in tandem if the career missionary is the focus and the financial and strategic emphasis. And the mission trip is supplementary, not substitutionary. And that's how we're going to do our short-term mission trips. And that's even reflected in our budget. We give a lot more to the cooperative program than we do our short-term mission trips. Because those with the cooperative program learn the language, learn the culture. Lottie and Annie as well. Um... And they learn the language, learn the culture, and they plant themselves amongst the people to uh, lead them to Christ. That's what Jesus did, and that's what the early uh, disciples did as well. So that's, that's our focus. In fact, with our mission strategy, what we're attempting to do is we're attempting to reach Guatemalans to partner with them, praying that God would raise up career missionaries from them to go to unreached, unengaged people groups or wherever it is that God leads them. And so that's my heart's desire and my prayer. Missions extends as far as the Christian presence, then it extends as far as demonic realms. Satan is so vicious, he afflicts the young. And that's what he does here. But anytime Jesus takes over, saves, forgives, and is Lord, he defeats the work of the devil. Then missions extends as far as faith. Jesus told them, they said, why couldn't we cast the demon out? And Jesus said, because of your unbelief. Uh, for assuredly, I say to you, if, if your faith was as small as a mustard seed, which implies it was not even that big. But if you had merely had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could have told a mountain to move from here to there, much less a demon to get out the boy. But they didn't even have that. And so uh, in this case, their mission on the earth to magnify Christ and to bring His power to a suffering people failed for lack of faith. Engaging in missions will probably take more faith than what you now imagine or even have. If it's a mission from God, it will stretch you. And 
Just get ready. In fact, God will probably find something that annoys you so he can do it over and over and over again until he shapes you into the image and the stature and the fullness of Christ. Then there's the Lord of Missions, verses 22 through 27. Uh, Jesus magnifies his lordship. And he, in verse 22 and 23, he demonstrated that he rules as Lord over evil. While they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them in verse 22, Now the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and he will be, and they will kill him. And the third day he'll be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Well, they were sorrowful this side of Calvary. We read that on the other side of Calvary. I rejoice because I know the rest of the story. Because Jesus was Lord even over that evil. Now, God does not cause evil. He doesn't cause evil at all. He has nothing to do with it. There are some theologians who would say that he does. Even Christian theologians, even inerrantists would. Uh, some in their camp would disagree with them and fight them fiercely. But they would say that God ordains it. God arranges it. Which means holiness and love are thoroughly meaningless. Thoroughly meaningless. Those words have no meaning if that's the case. Jesus does not cause evil, but Jesus uses evil just as much as he uses gospel preaching. He is capable of using both. That is the extent of his lordship and his sovereignty. Now, he'd prefer to use evangelism. It's holy. He doesn't want there to be any evil. Don't misunderstand me. But he is not handcuffed by the evil choices of men and women. And verses 22 and 23 indicate that because here Jesus says, uses words of sinfulness to describe the events leading up to the crucifixion. He would be betrayed and yet that's the salvation of the world. Doesn't cause it. But he uses it just as much as he uses preaching. And there will be plenty that arises between now and Indian town. Goodness. If this week is like every other week of my ministry life, there'll be plenty that will rise before Sunday. And he is still Lord. Even evil has to serve him. Jesus demonstrated he rules as Lord over the temple. Verses 24 through 26. Let me read the whole story here. And it's got a parable in it. In uh, verse number uh, 25 and 26. When they came to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? They had to pay an annual tax, uh, the male head of every household. And uh, they asked uh, Peter about Jesus. Doesn't he pay the temple tax? And he said, Well, yeah. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him. How marvelous how he can do that. He anticipated Peter, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or strangers? And Peter said, well, from strangers, of course. They would never tax one of their own sons. Jesus said, well, then the sons are free. Now look at the next word. You have to be careful of basing interpretation on really one word, but this does it right here. This is a safe place. Nevertheless, there's a contrast here. I'm about to spin things. The condition after the word nevertheless is different than the condition before the word nevertheless. Okay, they tax strangers, they don't tax sons. Nevertheless, let's pay the tax lest we offend them. So what is Jesus saying here? In the parable, Jesus is not the stranger, Jesus is the 
He's the son of the king, is who he is. And so he is Lord even over the temple. The temple was where Israel got to meet God and walk with him. And Jesus says, I'm Lord over that operation. He'd say it differently in John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father yet by me, except by me. And so he says he's the Lord of the temple. Then he's Lord over creation because look what he did in verse 27. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea. It's a pretty big sea there, Galilee, or a good-sized lake at least. Cast in a hook. Take the fish that comes up first. No trial and error here. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. It's not a net. Yep, it's just a hook. And take the one you find first and there will be a piece of money in it. Now this is a miracle at several levels, but it served to fund and resource Jesus' tax bill and Peter's tax bill. We can trust the Lord to source our mission. It's God's will for you to go then. Would you please get your deposit in tonight? God will take care of you, okay? That reminds me of what J. Hudson Taylor said. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. He always comes through. Amen? Well, we've got a sweet family that is about to experience a real direct missionary transition in their lives. And I want to ask our staff and deacons to come and join me here real quickly at front as Tammy and uh, her girls who are here tonight come. We're going to pray for them. They've had a real neat development. They've been praying that God would guide them to a missionary experience and area to serve, and he's done so. Uh, They'll be soon taking off to Nashville, Tennessee, uh, where they'll be serving with a church planting ministry that involves uh, funding and resourcing of thrift stores and uh, also involves uh, uh, increasing the number of uh, groups that do short-term missions, which is a specialization. So um, Lizzie, if you will, Sarah, come on up. I want you three to gather yeah, right here. That'd be great. And I want to ask our deacons to lay hands on them. And um, I want to ask that, um, John, would you lead us um, in prayer? And I will uh, ask Tommy Fountain. Tommy, will you close us, please? And let's ask God to bless their mission and their trip, their service to Him, and to do all that's necessary uh, to take care of uh, every one of their needs. By the way, they need a house, okay? Uh, That's important and uh, super important, so uh, pray for that as well, all right?
extensions of uh, Lord, even the ministry that we have here that goes out in the form of uh, individuals and, and, and missionaries in this case that go to other places and serve uh, you. So, Lord, we just ask you again just to bless our ministry, bless, Lord, uh, all their steps as they seek to follow your will, and as they're, they're stepping out uh, once again in faith and trusting you. Amen. You make sure you share your love with them tonight, okay? It'll take one, two, three months, depending on some things, for them to finally make the transition there. So they'll be with us for a little while. That'll give you an opportunity to share your love with them, okay? Good. Bless you. Have a good night.